blocking. Deep pattern downfield. Touchdown, Miami. What a throw. Devontae Parker. Holy smokes. What a drive. What is up, Dolphins, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? It is Friday. I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and as always, I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, it's Fan Friday on a football Friday. We're going to hear from John Kinjemi, answer your questions, pick the NFL slate, and give you a weekend prospect guide as we do every Friday here on the podcast. From the Baptist Health Studios inside the Baptist Health Training Complex, this is the Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins Come celebrate the life of Don Shula this Saturday at 4.30 at Hard Rock Stadium. The free event is open to the public and will feature remarks from the Shula family with panel discussions from several Dolphins alumni. Attending fans will also receive a commemorative Don Shula 347 patch. Registration is now open at dolphins.com slash Don Shula. And let's go ahead and start this podcast as we do every Friday by welcoming in my friend and my guest, John Kinjemi. Well, John, we're back here for the fourth Friday edition of the Drive Time Podcast this 2021 season, and I'm not normally one for superstitions, but what was it that we did ahead of game one? Let's let's try to go back to that and help our guys get back to 500 this weekend. I know. I was trying to figure out what I was wearing, where I was sitting. Um, yeah, let's get back to week one. I like winning. That, that's for sure. Well, we get a chance to get back in the win column this Sunday against the Colts, and let's actually, before we get to Sunday, start with the Saturday celebration of life of Don Shula here at Hard Rock Stadium at 4.30. I just want to go ahead and give you the floor, John, as a, you know, South Florida, a mainstay here in South Florida. You spent plenty of time down here covering this football team and otherwise. Just want to give you the chance to kind of talk about Don Shula, both the football coach, but I think even more importantly, the man, Don Shula. Well, I I think growing up in South Florida, uh, you know, my parents moved from Youngstown, Ohio when I was seven years old. So, my dad was a teacher and a coach, and that's what Coach Shula was. You know, he's a guy from Ohio that really uh, put South Florida and the city of Miami on the map, uh, utilizing the Miami Dolphins as that vehicle. Uh, coming from Baltimore and being the head coach of the Dolphins and going through that heyday uh, in the early 70s, I mean, it was easy to be a fan of the Miami Dolphins. And it was a direct correlation because of the way Coach Shula uh, really rejuvenated uh, this franchise and rejuvenated a city and had people pulling together for, for one common cause, and that was rooting for the Miami Dolphins. And, you know, as a kid, Travis, it's pretty cool to go uh, to what was the Orange Bowl and very rarely uh, ever seeing your, your team lose. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a long time where the Bills would come into town, you know, the New England Patriots would come into town. I'm not so sure they lost to them in the 70s. You know, it was hard. It, <laughs> you, it was very rare. And for a kid growing up, that just made you appreciate not only the players, but the, the way they were coached as you grew up. And, you know, and I matured, you the value of what he instilled in his football teams. I remember when I was a, a high school player at St. Thomas Aquinas playing against Sean one of Coach Shula's sons, Mike, was the quarterback on the opposing team. And we had the better of it, you know, one evening on a Friday night. And Coach Shula waited around to shake my hand and introduce himself and say, I played a great game. 
you know, I thought that was the top of the, the world for me. Oh, man, yeah. Uh, you know, then getting to know him and getting to be around players that he had coached and hearing all the stories, uh, great, funny, bad, indifferent. They were, they were all over the board. But one thing for certain, everyone respected Coach Shula and the way his teams performed, the way they prepared, the way they were disciplined. And, and just his charitable work, you know, what, raising a family, doing things for the city of Miami, it was just – just so many things that you could say uh, that Coach Shula touched so many lives of people, young, old, uh, in the middle. And it was through the vehicle of football and, and things he did off the field that really made you appreciate him. That's perfect, John. I can't even I can't expand upon that anymore other than just to say come out on Saturday to Hard Rock Stadium to hear more kind of discussions like that about the legendary coach. There's going to be plenty of Miami Dolphins alumni at that event. I'm sure it's going to be all all great for all things Dolphins, and you might even shed a tear or two at that uh, celebration of life of Don Shula on Saturday. And then after that, we've got a game on Sunday. And, you know, John, I'm not really a sp- spiritual person, but sometimes things just kind of find a way to work out with having the Colts in Miami this season for a game at Hard Rock Stadium because it works out with Shula's legacy being predominantly with Miami and, of course, a little bit back with the then Baltimore Colts. But I want to talk about the Indianapolis Colts and stay at that quarterback position with Carson Wentz, who has not one but two ankle injuries, kind of a bizarre thing, that he played through last week against the Titans. And, you know, John, my goodness, they make these guys tough in this league, don't they? It's it's crazy that you can get through a game with two bum ankles. I mean, I, I sprained an ankle one time, and I was useless for weeks. I couldn't even get off the couch with that thing. <laughs> and that was just the one ankle after a basketball roll-up. But I touched on this on the Thursday <clears throat> preview show. I want to go ahead and just hear from someone who's played the position how difficult do you think it would be to go out there with a bad ankle and try to still get drive on the football or, you know, get through your drops or get through your reads and all the footwork that's required in the pocket? What's Carson Wentz going to be dealing with out there on Sunday with those two uh, wobbly ankles? Anytime you're not 100%, you're, you're thinking about, you know, how can you get through? What, what do you have to do to make this throw? What do you have to do to get this handoff uh, deep enough so that, you know, your running back is, is able to see the hole and give him time to hit the hole with authority? Um, you, you're, it constantly is on your mind. Now, the good thing for Carson is he's gone through a week kind of going through those scenarios at practice and then performing in a game and, and being able to get through. Although they, you know, you lose uh, to Tennessee, you play fairly well. You, you keep it within almost a one-score game. I think it was 25-16. But, you know, Carson Wentz is a big guy. He's a strong guy. And he usually relies on that mobility, uh, not – only within the pocket, but to, to extend plays. So that's something that is definitely going to have to be on the mind of the Miami Dolphins and how they go after Carson Wentz. And and for, for him personally, the good thing is that he's gone through it one week. He's probably a little bit better for it. Uh, there's always things you can take to help you get through those issues. But I, I would think that it's probably his advantage going through it one week being injured and facing the Dolphins and this being his first week and not knowing how his body's going to react. That's probably the biggest thing. You want to be able to know how your body's going to react and not only in practice, but when in game time, when you have to make those sudden adjustments with split-second accuracy. No, that's a really good point. He did get through that entire game last week, and you know, good on him. I think he definitely gives the Colts the best chance to win as they actually brought up a 
a quarterback from someone else's practice squad and Brett Hundley and activated him to the to the main roster. And they've also got Jacob Easton waiting in the wings there, the former UW quarterback, second round draft pick. And, you know, Wentz is not the only guy battling injuries. They have a long list of players on the injury report there in Indianapolis. And so from your experience as a player, John, when you're going into a game knowing you might be down some key guys, how does that kind of impact the rest of the locker room throughout the course of the week in practice and the meetings? Like what's a player's mindset when you know we might be down five or six important guys this weekend? Well, it hurts. You know, you're right. Half the Colts team seemed like they were on the injury report, (laughs) you know, the middle of the week. And I'm sure it's going to get a little bit better as they get closer to game time on Sunday. But it does play into your mind a little bit. I think as a player, you want to know who's available. Uh, but it only plays into your mind early in the week. Once you get Wednesday and Thursday's practice and Friday's kind of dress rehearsal, you've got guys that you're counting on. And that's why they're on the roster. You have to be able to you know, step up, accept the responsibility, and really don't have any um, lag in performance. And that's the mindset you have to have. If you don't have that mindset and you do struggle – you know, Wednesday to Friday at practice because you're missing uh, two linemen or a key receiver or a, a key nickelback or a corner. Those things creep into Sunday. And for the Colts, that mindset, you don't want to have that. You know, for the Dolphins, I think they're health-wise are way ahead of where the Colts are right now. So I, I think that is a huge advantage. But I would say if I was putting on that, you know, that horseshoe helmet of the Colts right now and I'm thinking about it, you want to block that out. Guys are on the roster for a reason. They have to step up. They have to perform. And you have to be able to get them and doctorate them into the playbook the way you want that, that program to run on Sunday, the way you want that game plan to flow on Sunday on both sides, really all three phases of the game. You have to completely be on board with the guys that are available and go forward with those guys believing that you can win. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've, I've heard this you know, from various whether it's on social media or fans or practice, whatever the case may be, I've heard before, like, you know, I'm focused on the top, you know, 10 or 15 players in the roster. I'm thinking to myself, you got to have 53 guys. Have you never seen a football season before? Because a 17, now 18 week season, you're going to have to call upon, if not all of those guys, most of those guys for some key role at some point throughout the course of the season. We've seen it year in, year, you know, year in and year out across the National Football League, team in and team out. So I'm with you on that. 53-man roster, everyone's important. Everyone has a job. Everyone has a role that they have to fulfill. And with that in mind, just kind of looking at this Colts roster and what they bring, you know, they're 0-3, but I think I think most would agree they're a better team than an 0-3 record. They've had a pretty tough start to the season with their schedule and, of course, the injuries like we talked about. But they're well-coached. They're a deep roster. If you can just kind of talk about some keys to this Colts game and then also our final question here is before the mailbag, John, the Dolphins win this game if fill in the blank. Well, I, I think, you know, to start with that, the Dolphins win if they can stop the run. I think that's number one because – with the injuries and with Carson Wentz not being maybe as mobile as he would have been three weeks ago, Jonathan Taylor is the guy that has to have a big game if if the Colts are going to win. He has to be able to control the football on, you know, uh, on first down, on second down. And, and if he does, that allows Carson Wentz to get the play action. It allows him to make it easier down the field. Now, I would say Michael Pittman, Paris Campbell, guys like uh, Pascal and Doyle, so if you can shut down the running attack, if you can win that battle up front with the front seven for the Dolphins, boy, you put a whole lot of pressure now 
on Carson Wentz scoring points. You put a whole lot of pressure on that offense staying on the field, and it makes it a lot easier for the Miami Dolphins to win this game at home. So I, that's the first thing. You have to stop the run. And what happens after that? If you do, or it's slow it down at least, you get after Wentz. You show him a couple of blitzes. You put pressure. You send an extra guy because of the point I made with, with the players you're going against. You know, last week was a tough challenge for the Dolphins, and they were up to the challenge. They gave up some big plays, but they were up to the challenge. They moved guys around uh, that that defensive backfield, I mean, you saw X on the inside. You know, you saw Byron Jones on Waller. You saw, you saw guys in positions that you hadn't seen them in the past. I don't think the Dolphins are going to have to do that on defense. If they can stop the run, play solid in the back end, and get after that line of scrimmage, get after wins, I think those are the, that's the way the dominoes have to fall. And lastly, I would say, you know, we've been talking about explosive plays for, I don't know, yeah. uh, at least at least three weeks, Over right? Over a year now, it seems but like. But the, <laughs> the Dolphins must create some explosive plays. Now, we've been stretching the field. We've been stretching it sideline to sideline. You need to stretch it a little bit more goal line to goal line. Now, it doesn't have to be the 50-yard down the field shot every time, but it might be nice for the Dolphins to get a break on a flag now and then that would get you that 33-yard gain or 45-yard gain where maybe it's not successful, you know, throwing it and catching it, but you get a PI down the field, and, and that helps you. It gets you out of, you know, bad field position, or it gets you into the red zone, or it gets you down to the one-yard line. Let's take a couple of more shots down the field and see if we can't connect on a few, and if not, get a good break and, and maybe let those penalties work in your favor this week. And that actually was a big reason for the game-tying touchdown last week, the, the pass interference down to the one-yard line. You score a touchdown, then you punch in the two-point conversion, tie game, go to overtime. And, John, I always love having you on after I've done my kind of study for the week on the team because it kind of helps me confirm or, or go back and look at the tape some more. And you confirmed two of my points there with regards to the Colts' running game. And just looking at the splits, out of 11 personnel, they've been very successful running the football this year with Jonathan Taylor. So that's a key for me in this game as well. And then you mentioned the pass-catching options there. Number two, three, and four leading target uh, receivers, the guys that have the most targets, are tight ends and running backs. So they definitely throw the ball to the guys, you know, not on the perimeter as much uh, regarding Michael Pittman. And then the tight ends and running backs, they go too heavy there. So we got a little bit more here with John Congemi. You want to stick around for the mailbag, John? Yeah, that sounds terrific. Okay, we've got three here for you this week, and there's some good ones. I like these questions a lot. This first one comes in from Meester Tweet, a great handle there. Now that the coaching staff has addressed the lack of explosive plays, kind of like you mentioned, John, are we going to see some explosive play calls this week? Do 50-50 balls come into play and possible DPI or catch down the field? What do you think about that? I mean, you just kind of touched on it. Is there anything else you want to add to that? Well, I think, you know, they have addressed it. They, they've talked about it, uh, you know, with their media availabilities this week, and they've talked about trying to get the football down the field. Now, talking about it's one thing. Yep. Actually scripting it and getting it into the offense and being in a position to do it is another. Sometimes you just have to take a series of downs and say, listen, I wouldn't be surprised if Dolphins come out first and 10, first possession, throw one down the field, you know. If you don't get it, the crowd's going to go crazy, right? The, the crowd's <laughs> going to clap mockingly a, a little bit. But at least you, you're kind of saying, you know what, we're going to be more aggressive today. We're going to take some shots down the field. And I, I think you are going to see that. Now, are they going to completely just drop what they believe in philosophy-wise and just, you know, bombs away? No, they have to be who they are. 
but I think you can script or add some of that stuff in there and make sure you have it on your call list, you know, in bright red letters or green letters or whatever gets your attention. Let's take a shot, you know, take a shot here, take a shot there. Maybe it's sudden change. Uh, You know, they've got a great, you know, dialed up play that they've repped during the week. Let's call it then. But I do think you will see the ball go down the field this weekend. No, that's a great answer. And I, I loved you. You kind of gave us a segue into the second question here. And this is something I've been interested in myself as well. So great to have a former player on the podcast to talk about this. It comes in from at JCC Dixon 33 on Twitter. Are the first 20 plays scripted in a game? If so, how hard is it to call the 21st play? Any idea how a play call is generated slash talked about? I know that's very inside baseball, but I'm curious. So, John, just the the general script. I've always heard 15 plays. Is that the case? And then what happens after that script? Like, Can you just tell us a little bit about scripting your first few plays on offense? Sure. I, I don't know if I've ever gone to 20. Uh, there are some teams, uh, college, high school, pro, that go 15, some are 12, some are 10. It's just the personal preference of that coordinator. But it gives you a chance at practice to kind of rep what you're going to see the first time you have the football. And you work on positives. You don't really script for negatives. You're working, you know, if if the first play is a running play, hey, now it's second and five or it's second and six. This is the second play. And you kind of have building blocks uh, on how you're going to script the plays. And the good thing about it is you rep it at practice, you feel good about it, you see what's working, what's not working, what you like, what you don't like. And by Friday, you've got that script kind of honed in, whether it's 10, 12, 15 plays, on how you want the game to start. Whether you score on the first opportunity, you get eight plays into it, you continue on the next series. Um, I'm not so sure if the Dolphins do or, or do not script plays. But that's kind of what goes into it. And the way you do it is where you get the football on the field. First and 10 on the 25, they've kicked it in the end zone. This is where we want to start. Maybe it's a sudden change play that you, you know, put into your script. Uh, Dolphins are on defense. All of a sudden you get a turnover, bang. You either want to go to number one on the plays that you've scripted or you go right to your sudden change play depending on where you get the football on the field. So there's a lot of ideas on how you script plays, but basically – When you go through your game plan and every call sheet on the sideline is going to have a first and 10 backed up first and 10 plus, you know, minus 25 first and 10 midfield uh, first and 10, you know, plus 30 or plus 35. Then you have your red zone. So everything's kind of bracketed. So everybody's gone through that. We always talk about it's a collaborative effort. Well, you get to that script or you get to that call sheet by going through what the quarterback likes, what the coordinators like. Uh, what the head coach kind of says, hey, I want this in this week. So that's how you get to either a script, your play calls, or your play calls in certain segments of the field. No, that's a great answer, and I appreciate the question as well there from J.C. Dixon on Twitter. You know, and and just kind of what it sounds like to me is that there's always adjustments to be made even within your script because, like you talk about, if things don't go the way you plan them to, you have to adjust to that. So, you know, those in-game coaching adjustments, I think, can maybe be a little bit lost to the casual observer because it's it's such a battle, you know, a chess match and a battle of attrition and trying to – I, I want to react to what they're going to do or what I think they're going to do, and then how do we react to that as well? Like, it, there's so much that goes into it. It's what makes football so much fun to me. And then I want to go ahead and end on this third question here from at Lord Tua, another great name writing in for the podcast here. Um, talking about the offensive line, he refers to it as a regression, but maybe you have a different word for it. He just says, what are your thoughts on the regression of the offensive line? Do you think it has anything to do with a first-year offensive line coach? What do you think about the offensive line 
Ben's pr uh, progression so far now with a bunch of young guys, John, and then also the what the challenges of our first year offensive line coach in that room. Well, I don't know if it has to do with with a first year offensive line coach. I, I I think you're only as good as what you're putting on tape, and it doesn't look like um, guys are making the same mistake. You know, whether it's uh, identification or footwork or hand placement or just getting physically beat or there's a speed rush that beats you on the outside. Um, I wouldn't say regression. I would say stagnation. I would say that they have to find a way to get out of where they were in, in week one and two and, and maybe a little bit in week three. I, I thought they improved against the Raiders. I liked the, the adjustment of Davis going inside and letting the rookie Eichenberg kind of live on the right side. You know, if it were me, I would let him live there for the rest of the season. Health, you know, taking that out of the equation. If he's healthy, you should start, let him play, because he's your future on the outside. Um, I think this week the Colts present a challenge. It's going to be a challenge every week in the National Football League. Uh, your will against somebody else's will when it comes to controlling the offensive and defensive line of scrimmage. Uh, this week is no different. I, I think the Colts uh, do give you some challenges up front. But I do believe the Dolphins, with the lineup that they have, now crossing your fingers that Dieter's going to be able to be yeah. okay and, and play, I'd like to see this group, the way they were against the Raiders, go against the Colts and see if we can see uh, an improvement from week three to week four. And the proof will be in the pudding. Can you run the football? Can you get to play action? Can you pass protect? Can you give Jacoby an opportunity to create from the pocket instead of him escaping and, and extending plays and those be your most explosive plays of, of the week. If they can do those things, then we're on, on the on the right path in terms of offensive line. Yeah, it'd be nice to see some continuity built in there because from day one back in training camp of 2019, like Flores' first ever training camp practice, he talked about continuity and finding the best guys, the best five guys and having them all play together and develop that continuity. We saw that lineup on Sunday. I thought showed some real growth compared to the previous game, and especially with Austin Jackson at left tackle, you know, two weeks off the COVID list, he even said himself he felt stronger in that second game. So, John, you're a very busy man on Sundays. I'll see you, I'll see you at Hard Rock Stadium, but where can the folks find you pregame, postgame? What are you up to? Uh, we'll be doing the uh, Dolphins Weekly Live on Channel 4, WFOR, uh, CBS 4 Miami. So we'll do that right after the Brian Flores uh, show on uh, on CBS. That'll be at 11.30, and then we'll have the fifth quarter postgame show uh, wrapping up. Uh, I think it's going to be on Channel 4 or uh, Channel 33, but uh, you can catch us on one of those two. Probably, I would say, around the 4 o'clock hour, 4.15. Uh, we'll be on there for about an hour and a half. So um, that's what I'll, I'll be doing. I know you'll be busy on radio, so we'll pr probably catch up uh, midweek again and and talk about the next opponent, which is Tampa Bay. But hopefully we have a victory to talk about. I can't wait to get there. And, and hopefully we have some key lime pie in that press box. And have it week two. I'm looking <laughs> forward to this week. That's a good luck charm. If we see that, we got, a, we got a good thing going. Maybe that's the superstition right there. Key lime pie. You heard it here first on Drive Time Podcast. John Kajemi, thank you so much for your time today, my friend. We'll talk to you on Sunday. Sounds great. Thanks, Travis. And so we roll off that interview there with John Congemi. Great, as always, here on the Friday edition of the Drive Time Podcast. If you have not done so already, go ahead and obliterate that subscribe button. Leave us a rating, leave us five stars, and we'll answer your questions on those reviews here on the Friday edition of the Drive Time Podcast. 
brought to you by AutoNation. And we got one here from the Apple Podcast Reviews, and I recognize this name writing in once again, Cool Kids Table, and the E is a three at the end of that. He writes, would you compare Brian Flores to Rex Ryan, a defensive coach who has yet to land an offensive identity yet? I understand the question, but I don't think that's the case. Coach, I wouldn't call him a defensive-minded coach. He's just a football coach. Like, he's been involved on offenses, on defenses, on special teams, and personnel, scouting, the whole gamut. He's done it all. And I think the offense does need to find and develop an identity. And I think losing your starting quarterback in the first quarter of game number two will certainly create some obstacles in doing that in the early portions of a season where you're trying to introduce a new offensive system. I mean, watch watch a single broadcast of Peyton and Eli on Monday night, which should be every week, by the way. That's the best thing on football broadcasting has ever done. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Peyton will talk about how much he despises the thought of learning a new system. It's not easy to do, and I can pull up old quotes from even Tom Brady last year talking about how it took him some time to get the Bucks system down there with Bruce Arians, even though Bruce Arians said this week that they use a lot of, if not all of, the Patriots' concepts with Tom Brady in mind. So something to think about there with regards to the offensive system. I would say more than three games is required before you can really start to judge what you see as the product. It's a work in progress. And I think the one thing that I would hope to see is an offense that can do the things that we try to prevent on the defensive side, right? Like the invitation to you know, be more run-centric and prevent the big plays and the long pass plays over the top to force those long drives and put the onus on the offense to limit their mistakes to almost nothing because you have to have that on long drives and then also play really good red zone defense and make the offense beat you without those mistakes, converting in the red zone and then not having turnovers throughout the course of the game. I hope we can become that offense that can strike quick and not have to rely on being perfect and limiting mistakes and playing perfect in the red zone. I hope that answers your question and I appreciate you writing in. Let's get to a few of these on the Twitter mailbag. I put the call out on Thursday morning. You reply with your questions. We answer them here on the Friday edition of the Drive Time Podcast. And Mike Morby, at Mike Morby 7 this guy actually used to paint the corners back when we were coming up in the Eastern Washington baseball landscape. Pitched at my rival high school, and I had a hard time getting my OPS going against this guy. So what's up, Morbs? He asks, better Logan Gilbert comparison, Josh Beckett or A.J. Burnett? And that's a lot of Mariners and Marlins crossover there because you guys know about Josh Beckett, and Logan Gilbert is a current starter in the Seattle Mariners rotation. I'm going A.J. Burnett because I just love the fact that the other night in the game, Gilbert was popping 98 middle-middle, like middle of the plate, middle of the strike zone, and getting away with it. That's the big league heat you saw with A.J. Burnett for years. Josh Beckett, I thought, was he had the heat for sure, but definitely more of a well-rounded pitcher in that regard. At Gabe Gino 13 asks, number one, if you had to pick the most positive thing from weeks one through three, what would that be? I would say the secondary in this defense is as advertised with regards to Xavier Howard, Byron Jones, and that safety rotation with all the cornerback depth you have there as well. I think those guys have all played very, very well. And at moments during these defensive surges we've seen in week one, as well as last week, and then some moments there in week two, the secondary has been a driving force behind that. His second question, my overdramatic self is thinking Sunday is a must-win game. Not trying to be that guy who says game four is do or die, but with week five in Tampa Bay, a one and four start dooms the season. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, you don't want to be one and four. I will say in 2016, they were one and four and they went 10 and six that year and went to the playoffs. I just cannot call, like you mentioned, a week four game a must-win game. Like it doesn't matter 
the situation, the dire straits, like you never know what's going to happen and what kind of run you can go on late in the year. Hell, last year was what, a five-game winning streak? And so that can erase a one-and-four start if you do win five games in a row. And so I do think this is the most important game that there is right now because it is the next game. But getting back in the win column before a tough opponent is certainly going to be you know, something you want to do. And it's a big spot for this team. You don't want to fall to one and three and you for sure don't want to fall to zero and two at home. So it's a definitely a big game. Must wins too far, but I do want to get this W for sure. At narrator underscore 32. I felt like one of the reasons the Dolphins lost last week was the difference in yards after contact. How do we improve our ability to limit that for the Colts and, and get some more explosive for ourselves or get some more for ourselves going forward. With regards to the Colts, it's just tackling and execution. That's all that is. And this defense typically under Brian Flores has been that. And you heard Jerome Baker talk about it. You've heard Brian Flores talk about it. The execution just hasn't been what you would expected so far this season. So that's the number one key there, just to execute that. And then offensively, it's, it's the same thing. But I would also point to the the segment we had on the Sunday night postgame show with OJ McDuffie talking about maybe incorporating some more routes that get the football to guys on the move or just execute those when they are there because there's too many instances I think right now where guys are catching the football flat-footed and that does not bode well, does not condu- is not conducive to yards after the catch. They have the talent, they just got to make it happen. Next question from at dquick0498. Why haven't we seen the Amoeba defense yet? Well, I'll go ahead and put it to you this way. I can't give you an exact reason, but I know that every single week requires a different game plan. And if the coaches think that their game plan is doesn't require that, they're not going to put it in. So that's the reason for it right there. I'm sure you'll see it at some point this season. Let's finish up with this one here from Jason Sarney because this is one of the craziest questions I've ever seen. But it's not the only time I've seen it. It's popular. He's at Jason underscore Sarney. Milk before cereal or cereal before milk? Look, <clears throat> this should not be a question. I mean, do what you want. Like, I, I don't care for the hot dog sandwich arguments. I don't care about any of that. I don't care if you like pineapple on your pizza or not. Eat what you like. Eat what makes you happy. Do what makes you happy in this life. As long as you're not hurting others. I don't give a crap what you do as long as you're not hurting others. But pouring milk in the cereal bowl before the cereal is cereal killer mentality stuff. Like, what are you doing? Number one, the splash factor. You're going to get milk coming out of that bowl if you put the cereal into a bowl of milk, which is for like cats. Who? What kind of a human puts milk in the bowl first? I don't understand this. Plus, your distribution of sogginess, like the way the milk cascades over the cereal gives you that balance of, you know, the milk-soaked cereal with the crunchiness. It's perfect. You do it the other way around, you're going to have a different, completely off-balance ratio. And the ratio of how much milk to put into the bowl is also easier when you have the cereal in there first. So if you go milk first in your cereal, it's my opinion that it's time to reevaluate your entire life. (laughs) It's crazy to me. Like, do you guys do that? Does anybody out there do that? Let me know if you do, and we can maybe have that discussion on Twitter. But no, it's milk, cereal first, and then milk. And there were a ton of questions in the mailbag this week. I wish we had time to get to them all. We do not. We'll get to some more on the written mailbag up on MiamiDolphins.com. Thank you guys so much for the questions. We have two more segments here. We'll do them quick. The college three-pack. Was going to do a college six-pack. I'm washed up, so we do half the six-pack and get to three games here. And I want to go ahead and include here that last week I should have put Liberty Syracuse in the slate because even though we had our second straight 3-0 week on the podcast here to get to 6-3 and on the season... Malik Willis, to me, is so far and away QB1 in this draft class right now. 
And that was probably the only chance we had to get him in here because of competition's sake and probably not going to watch many Liberty games this year. But Malik Willis, QB1 on my board heading into the month of October. Now, as for the games, let's go ahead and start here with number 14, Michigan at unranked Wisconsin. I'm taking the upset here. Give me the fighting Van Ginkles, that Badgers at Camp Randall. We gave you the Badgers players last week and that lopsided loss to the Irish. Let's go ahead and punt on their prospects. Just go back to last Friday's drive time episode and run that back if you want that prospect list because I want to talk about the Michigan Wolverines here and primarily two players I like a lot. Aiden Hutchinson is one of the best defensive end prospects in the country. In fact, Pro Football Focus tweeted out their top four defensive prospects currently are Kayvon Thibodeau from Oregon, the defensive end, Kyle Hamilton, the safety from Notre Dame, Derek Stingley Jr., the cornerback at LSU, and Aiden Hutchinson, edge defender for the Michigan Wolverines. Pass rush, run defense, dent in the edge, recognizing screens, retracing, hustle effort. He does all of it. I love his pad level so much. Like He rarely surrenders knockback because he plays with such good pad level. He can win with bull rush, the relentless motor, and he continues his pursuit after quarterbacks when they get off their spot, and he can change directions and redirect through contact, which helps him get cleanup sacks. He's such a special player, in my opinion. Number 97 in the maze and blue on that game on Saturday. I believe it's a noon kickoff. He'll stand up. He'll get in the four-point stance. He's everything you want at the position. Six foot six, 270 pounds, a great makeup at that position in this defense. If that's where you go in the future, certified stud. Now, in the secondary, another guy that I like a lot is Daxton Hill. Another one of these post-safety slash slot uh, corner cover guys. He flies to the football. Quick trigger, tremendous tackler. There's a little bit of Antoine Winfield Jr. in his game, and you guys know how much I loved A-Dub Jr. in that 2020 draft class. Then they have a pair of tackles I want to get a look at for myself. Haven't had a chance to see them yet, but I've read about them. Offensive tackle Ryan Hayes was a converted tight end who could make a jump with another improved season of play towards a top prospect. And then Andrew Stuber is six foot seven, 340 pounds. Uh, Leo DiCaprio Jiff from Django Unchained. You have my attention, so now I want to see if you can get my curi- or you have my curiosity, my bad. I want to see if you can get my attention and see if you can play. Game number two, number eight, Arkansas. Number two, Georgia. Oh, Nelly, it's a good one. We've covered both these teams so far in previous podcasts. I want to just go ahead and say this. Georgia has by far the best D-line in college football, and they're going up against one of the top offensive lines. Good on good always makes for fun. I just want to see that battle and really get a look at some good trench players. So give me the dogs in this one. This is the dogs! It's the Sanford, baby! This is how we do it for the dogs! Go, Georgia! I'm telling you that visor is coming off. Game number three, 12 ranked Ole Miss at number one Alabama Crimson Tide. Matt Corral for Ole Miss. Potential QB1 in this class has a chance to do it. Crazy arm talent, multiple arm slots, off script ability, kind of has that modern-day quarterback makeup. I want to get a look at how he can attack this Bama defense within the structure of the offense because I know he can make plays outside the structure and off script. I want to see how he does against a very good defense, a very well-coached defense there at Alabama. And I also love their linebacker, Lakia Henry, one of these versatile prospects with track speed and elite-level movement skills. So keep an eye on him. And also running back Jerion Ely, super electric guy, can make guys whiff even within a phone booth. Good pass catcher, looks like a nice change of pace prospect right now. Let's see how he fares against this Bama defense. And once again, we covered Bama on a previous podcast. So 
it's basically everybody on that team is a good prospect. Everyone that's draft eligible is on the watch list. Give me the Crimson Tide at home. Now, let's go ahead and get to Sunday and our professional football players and football teams. 12-4 and last week, 33-15 and on the season. We are cooking now. We took Jacksonville over Cincinnati on Thursday Night Football. No idea how that turned out. Recording this podcast before that game went final. Give me the Titans over the Jets. I just think even without A.J. Brown, Julio Jones, they are further along. I expect a big game from Derrick Henry. Chicago over Detroit. I think, I hope, there's a game plan for the Bears that better suits what Justin Fields does well. The fighting Dan Campbell suffered a brutal loss last week at home against Baltimore. This is kind of one of those cornered animal games like both these teams needed victory very very badly give me the bears miami over the colts give me the dolphins seth levitt on the post game show or i think maybe it was the fish tank i forget said that he says he expects the dolphins best performance coming this season in this game i agree with seth and then minnesota over cleveland the stefanski reunion game kirk cousins has quietly been damn good this year and i think that it's a huge Justin Jefferson game this week. Give me the upset. Give me the Vikings. Give me the football team over the Falcons. The Falcons pulled out one last week, but I think WFT's D-line is way too much for the Falcons to handle. Buffalo and the Texans. Give me the Bills in that one. Saints over the Giants. Chiefs over the Eagles. Give me the Dallas Cowboys over the Carolina Panthers. I think Dak has entered the echelon of top three or four quarterbacks. Carolina gets their first big test here. Give me the Cowboys in that one. Seahawks over Niners. I like Russell Wilson off a loss. I like Shanahan off a loss too, but this is a big game, that tough NFC West. Give me the Seahawks. Rams over Cardinals, staying out in that tough division. The Cardinals have had the Rams number in the last couple of years, but they haven't seen the Stafford Rams yet. Give me the Rams. Packers over Steelers. I think the Packers offense is way too much for Pittsburgh to keep up with. Baltimore over Denver. Just like Carolina, this is the first real test for the Broncos in terms of their schedule or strength of schedule. I don't want to see Lamar Jackson on that test. Give me the Ravens. Bucks over Patriots, one of my favorite games of the season. Give me the Bucks on that one. And then Chargers over Raiders. This one will for sure come down to some madness at the end because both these teams like to play games like that. I kind of like the Raiders in this game, but I think the NFL has a way of balancing records, and I just don't see them going out to 4-0 over Justin Herbert and the Chargers. So that is going to do it for us here. Enjoy the week four slate and the first weekend of October football here. You guys can find the post-game show on the Odyssey app and on local radio WQAM here in South Florida immediately following the game on Sunday. And of course, we'll have the takeaways and game recap podcast late Sunday night slash early Monday morning, as well as the takeaways written piece and top news throughout the course of the week on Saturday. We've got the Shula Celebration of Life 430 at Hard Rock Stadium Saturday, October 2nd. Plus, we'll have the top news story up sometime today, I believe, and the written mailback piece all leading up to game day this weekend as for now caroline daddy is coming home and oh hey one last note go mariners three meaningful october baseball games i have not been able to say that since like 2001 so i'm pretty excited for my seattle mariners in the meantime you all please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on apple podcasts leave us a rating leave us a review you can follow me on twitter at wingfield nfl you can follow the dolphins at miami dolphins check out the fish tank podcast with seth and oj the YouTube channel for all the media availabilities. Go ahead and bang that YouTube.com channel. Subscribe to that as well. And of course, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up.